Welcome to The Follow-Up, a weekly podcast that goes in-depth into projects recently reviewed on Brand New, featuring conversations with the designers and sometimes their clients, uncovering the context, background, and design decisions behind the work. Hi, this is Armin Vett, and welcome to episode number 61 of The Follow-Up. We hope you had a good and enjoyable holiday break and are ready to tackle 2023 because let's face it, otherwise 2023 will tackle you. So let's get to it. This week we're following up on the Houston Symphony, an American orchestra and one of the oldest performing arts organizations in Texas. The orchestra performed in the City Auditorium or the Music Hall before the construction in 1966 of its own building, the Jesse H. Jones Hall for the Performing Arts where it can host more than 2,000 people. The Grammy Award-winning Houston Symphony presents more than 130 concerts annually and has recorded under various labels including Koch International Classics, Naxos, RCA Red Seal, Telarc, Virgin Classics, and most recently, Dutch recording label Pentatone. With the start of the 2022-23 season, Houston Symphony welcomed its newest music director, Uri Valchua. The project, designed by Austin, Texas-based Foda, was posted on brand new on October 19, 2022. You can pull it up on your browser at bit.ly slash bmpodcast061, that is bit.ly slash bmpodcast061, all in lowercase. This week, we're joined by Jed Butler, Chief Creative Officer of Foda, and Wen Watkins, Chief Marketing Officer of the Houston Symphony. In this conversation, we get to hear about the understandable trepidation of the client going into a rebranding process after the pandemic halted their performances, leaving their budget lacking, and the impending unknown of a new musical director who had yet to start his tenure. Stepping in as a sponsor through an unexpected answer to the symphony's RFP, Foda proved to be an invaluable partner in this stage of their organization's history helping them define their position, not just amidst other reputable symphonies around the United States, but amidst other landmark organizations in Houston across arts, sports, and entertainment, with which they have to compete against for the public's time, energy, and money. Among other great topics, we do spend a good amount of time talking about the reference to Houston's highways being represented in the logo, and the conclusion is surprisingly interesting. Now, let's listen in as Bryony follows up with Jet and Gwen. How does one evoke sound, especially beautiful sound, using a visual approach for an iconic cultural institution? That is what we're about to find out today as we get the details on how the Houston Symphony, along with Foda, did just that. Gwen and Jet, welcome to the follow-up. Hello, thanks for having us. Thank you. If you don't mind taking a minute to just introduce yourselves and who you're representing today so our audience can match your voices to your roles in the project. Hi, I'm Gwen Watkins. I'm the Chief Marketing and External Relations Officer for the Houston Symphony. I've been here about four years. Before that, I had almost eight years at the Museum of Fine Arts. So I'm kind of a lifelong arts lover and arts employee. Wonderful. Jack? I'm the founder and the chief creative officer of FODA in Austin. It's always important to start with a foundation of what the institution or the client is. The Houston Symphony was established in 1913, and it is one of the oldest performing arts organizations in all of Texas. 
But if we jump a hundred and something years forward to the present, as you are embarking on a new season under new leadership of a new music director, I have to ask, why rebrand now? So it is a really exciting time for the symphony. We have a new music director. These kinds of leadership changes only happen at an organization like ours, hopefully maybe once a decade or so on average. With it, it always signals sort of a change in the approach that the organization's taking to their mission, the artistry of the orchestra. And with that, we felt that it was just a very logical time to rebrand. The previous branding coincided with the centennial of the symphony and a new music director at that time and was very much tied to where the symphony was in that time. It was about 2010. We have had some growing pains with that logo and didn't feel that it really reflected what we wanted it to reflect on behalf of the organization. So we'd been eager to find a moment to do that. And then when we found our new music director, signed the contracts, got him on board, it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to also make sure that our visual representation of our organization matched the direction we're heading as an organization. To get a better sense, can you give us an idea of when this was a year ago or when did this transition happen and establish the rebrand project? Like I said, we've been kind of eager to do this. You know, the way the contracts work for these conductors, they're years out. So we knew that the contract was ending on our current music director, but we didn't yet know who our new one would be. These processes can take years. You can go years without leadership in place. But we were very lucky to find Uri Valchua and sign with him in July of 2021. As soon as that signature was inked and the plans were made and we knew that his first official season would begin in September of 2022, that's pretty much immediately when we started saying, okay, we need to do this. Let's find the right person. That's why I ask timing, because there is so much going on behind the scenes in cultural institutions that sometimes you realize a project started five years ago. (laughs) That kind of thing. What were you hoping to find in the creative partner that would embark on this journey with you? It was really tricky. I felt a lot of pressure to find the right person. Obviously, branding. I'm talking to two people who do this. But for us, those of us who don't do this all the time, it's a very daunting project to take on. It's a very emotional and personal project to a lot of people. Art form is human's. And so we have all these humans that care deeply about how they're represented. For me, it was really important to find, obviously, a talented designer, a designer who recognizes the need for functionality, but also someone who's sensitive to artists and respectful of the art form without caricaturizing it or reducing it too much. The sensitivity and the understanding of the nuance and the importance of what our musicians are doing was really one of the most critical things for us. Jet, how did FOTA get involved with this project? We got a call from Gwen. That simple. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very banal, the answer to that question. Technically, I think it was an email. I think we got an email. Yeah. So how did you find them, Gwen? You know, I have to give credit to my senior designer working here at the time named Melissa. She and I were like, let's just cast a wide net. You know, as you do, you go with all types of firms, individuals. We did research of people who had done work in the arts nonprofit space. We looked beyond Texas, beyond Houston. We did stick with U.S.-based firms, but we looked at a lot of firms. And interviewed people and got bids and did all the things you do through this process. And it was just so easy for us to decide on FOTA because 
first of all, they were really the only ones that I spoke with that I felt confident in that respect for the art form, understanding of the nuance of it, and also a kind of approach that would be a partnership not so transactional, like, okay, you pay us this, we produce three things, you have a meeting, you pick one of the things, and then you move on. They really immerse themselves into the process and care deeply about the result. That made it an easy choice. I see. Jet, what was the main draw for you in responding? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, some backstory, some context is probably useful to answer that question. I studied classical music all the way up until my sophomore year of college. If you'd have caught me at the right moment in time in the late 80s, early 90s, I would have told you, you know, my career was going to be in music. And I veered away from it to design almost at sort of that the last minute. So there's a lifelong love and care for music. I also spent, I guess, five, six years in Houston growing up. I'm technically not a Texan. I was born in Virginia, but I lived in Houston for high school before going off to college. And so I still have a connection, a bit of an emotional connection to Houston. And getting a note from Gwen and, you know, with the signature line saying the Houston Symphony and talking about design work, I just was immediately sort of giddy, I guess is the best word. It spoke to your soul. Yeah, I mean, it's really like it's a, it's a very profound sort of opportunity. And we don't get the chance to do as much work in the arts as we want. We do get the opportunity. We've gotten to do some and it's lovely. But we always want to do more of that. And it's uh, very much a place that kind of uh, feeds the soul. So it was a very easy and immediate response when the note came through. You know, we couldn't have been more excited to step into the process with them. And then for both of you, I would like to know what the internal structure was as you proceeded with the rebrand. Mm -hmm. Who was on the creative side and Gwen for you? Who was on your team? Who were the decision makers? Who were all the players? So it was funny. I have to say I have a marketing committee. So a nonprofit, we are governed by a board and we have all these committees and transparency. And so I have a marketing committee. And when I told them I was doing this, they were like, wow, rebranding is not for the faint of heart. And they were using these kind of like warfare <laughs> terms. It really freaked me out. So I was like, great. Those are rough metaphors. Yeah, it was really <laughs> scary. But I thought, you know, it can't be that bad if we do it the right way. We gave a lot of thought into the structure, but on the other hand, didn't want to do a design by committee. I think that's everybody's nightmare and creates the worst results. So we created a small little working group. I will not call it a committee, <laughs> but it, we wanted to have voices from all the stakeholders so that when we did roll something out, at least all of those stakeholder groups would feel that they were represented. So we had two musicians, two board members, and then two staff, myself and our CEO. Through the process, Jet and Foda can speak on this, but they did a really good job of interviewing people. And we had a few discussions as a group about the direction. And then Jet, I don't know if you remember, I think there was only one or two points through the process where we brought something mm -hmm. to that group. And it was really like the big moment, you know, of here kind of three mm -hmm. concepts, and then maybe one more touch point of, okay, this is sort of it. And we're done. But we tried to not give them too much control over, I'm approving this, I'm not approving that, let's change the color, you know, the nitty gritty, but more directionally. And that was it. And so we tried to keep it really tight. And the big scary uh, question mark in all of it was the music director, because we have this <laughs> new person that we haven't really worked with much. And he's based in Europe. And he said that he trusted us to create something and that he didn't need to be involved. And so he was not involved. 
but we showed him the result before we went out with it and he was very happy. And since then I have to say, Judd, I don't know how much I've even gotten to talk to you about it, but every time he's been in town and he sees like he saw the season brochure, he wears his hat. We've seen photos of him wearing his hat in Italy. Nice. (laughs) He and his agent, they just love the branding. They're very proud of it. So it all worked quite well. That's wonderful. And Jet, who was involved on the creative team? At a certain point, it felt like everybody in the studio was working on the project. Myself, of course, Shruti Balakrishna, our design director, Ryan McLaughlin, one of our senior designers, A. Wirtz, one of our younger designers, Kelsey Walker, one of our designers at the time. And as with any project that we do in the studio, we're fairly unstructured about how the creative process works. We're very focused in the research side of things, the homework and field work, as we call it. But everyone participates in every aspect of the process. And that's something we've been doing for 20 years now. It doesn't matter how young you are, how new you are, or how experienced you are. Everyone works on the research. Everyone does homework. Everyone does field work. Everyone gets to participate in the creative as well. And I don't just mean participate in the sense of someone who got to, you know, reset some type on behalf of someone more senior. I mean, everyone gets to lay out their big idea and contribute their thoughts to the process. And we tend to believe that anybody in the process can have that big idea. It may sometimes need a little bit more structure or maturity added to it later if it comes from a younger designer, but sometimes it may not. And so we try to keep it very egalitarian during that part of the project and have as much creative input and as much research done collectively as possible. That's a really neat approach, and I'm sure your employees really (laughs) appreciate that opportunity. Now, as you've set up your teams, your structure, your approach, you're both excited. What were the key directives or parameters that you set either before the research or as an outcome of the research that then directed the creative? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And there's something very important, I think, maybe to hover on there. And Gwen, is it okay for me to discuss like the nature of how we sort of receive the RFP in general and our kind of... Sure. Okay, cool. Whatever you would like. Brian, I think it's useful to know like how we sort of reacted to the RFP itself. It kind of sets the stage for everything else that kind of goes with it. And so when the RFP came and we reviewed it, it was my feeling at the time that, and you have to remember, we're only in year two of the pandemic when we're, we're first entering this conversation. Everyone's still in masks. Some people are vaccinated, some people aren't. And the symphony has taken a real licking, <laughs> you know, on being able to perform. You can't put people in Jones Hall, you know, in a pandemic. And so when the RFP came, it was our feeling that what they needed was definitely important and the rebrand was crucial, but that they were in a pinch, you know, from a resources point of view, et cetera. And so our sort of position was to say, well, instead of us saying yes to this RFP at this fee range, which we don't think will get the project done correctly, we'd rather make a counter proposal, which is why don't we take that fee allocation and hold on to it for the use of assets and resources and things that may be needed in the process. And instead, let us do the entirety of what the process should constitute. That's way over your budget. So that's okay. We can just be a sponsor and play the role of a sponsor in this process and donate as much of our services as possible. That's a very counterintuitive approach to the average RFP. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, thank you. But, you know, we just felt like, let's just do it right and money be damned. Let's get this right and let's hold on to those resources. That's just an important thing to touch on, I think, first, because the next step then for us is like Gwen mentioned earlier, that idea of having a good partner in the process. We try to assert from day one that we will really be a good partner in this process. We're willing to take risk with you, which is, you know, atypical for most agencies. But we felt it was important. 
And then the shaping of that structure from that point forward in terms of team dialogue, interview cycle, everything kind of flowed beautifully from there. We were able to talk to everybody. We had huge, some huge interview segments, but then eventually whittled down to the not a committee, <laughs> as Glenn calls it, the not a committee, the, uh, the action team, and then sort of move through that tiny tight points of that process of the creative and then be able to flare that back out into a big funnel at the end where we're presenting it to the board, we're presenting it to all the stakeholders, we're getting on a Zoom and presenting it back to the entire symphony again. So there was this beautiful sort of bow tie shape to the process as well. I think that's really magical. And it's to Gwen's credit and to all the leadership at the symphony that they were willing to do both of those things because our proposal was counterintuitive and they said yes to that. And the funneling of that process, the bow tie, I think is the only way you can really build consensus and get through such an enormous process with so many voices in it and still have everyone have a chance to be heard and still have the outcome not be compromised. It can't be understated that what FOTA actually did was give us a gift. It is a partnership, but it's beyond that. And we certainly, as an organization in the best of times, would have struggled to meet the fee amount that this really was worth especially in the context we were in at that time, it was difficult. But what it means for us is that we can now use this new rebranding to take that step forward and build our audience and build our brand. And so it's a little off topic, but I did want to acknowledge that and make sure that that's clear. And we are just super grateful that we met them. You know, you hear Jet talk about his background and the fact that we all came together through this and it all worked the way it did is really just sort of miraculous. It was meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it. It's very special. So of all of that input that came into your funnel, what made it to the other side of the bow tie? What was like the essence of what you found in talking to all of the people at the symphony that pushed yourself forward? This will sound like an evasive answer. It's not meant to be. The first thing you learn in that process is there are deep and profound emotions attached to how each entity sees the symphony and is attached to the symphony. It's also important to point out that the Houston Symphony is one of the top tier performing symphonies in the world. And what I mean by that is that their musicians are paid. This is not a part-time gig. This is how these folks make their living. And it's an incredible thing to sort of touch and be a part of. So there's a lot of emotion attached to that. There's a lot of care and concern. There's also the cares and the concerns of the stakeholders, of the donor groups and the sponsors. There's the concerns of the board. There's the concerns of the C-suite and the marketing team, et cetera. It's a lot. What we tried to do with all of that input and information was two things. One, have a process that allowed us to say, okay, let's take all that into consideration, yes, but then let's also take a really hard look at how do symphonies and performing arts groups, and then if you want to extend the ring out a little bit more broadly, how do arts groups in general, when they be performing or fine, et cetera, how do they represent themselves historically? How do they represent themselves now? How do they represent themselves in Houston? How do they represent themselves globally? And what we wanted to do is sort of build a baseline of understanding together between all of these different entities to say, here's how everyone else sort of represents themselves historically. And so we want to carve out a path that sets the Houston Symphony apart, is appropriate for Houston, is somehow tied to the ground in the same way that Jones Hall is as well. So the differentiation, the sort of the exclusionary exercise of looking at the comp sets, here's all these things that we don't want to be, became a big part of the process as well. For us, that's one way of being able to absorb all of the input and the information is rather than try to say, okay, we're trying to make everybody happy. Our approach is usually to say, let's try to share with everyone what we're seeing and how we're seeing it almost as sort of at a clinical level to go, if everyone else has a sans serif stacked lockup with a swooshy sort of symbol next to it on the left, 
then maybe the approach for us should start without a swooshy looking simple to the left and omitting a sans serif approach. So being a little bit more sort of context driven so that you end up with a vessel that can sort of receive everyone's emotion and desires and less about sort of asserting a path that has to be ours, but perhaps also trying to assert a path that's trying to please everyone. The thing I'm trying to dance around saying is you're trying to educate everyone because that can sound pompous or arrogant. And I don't mean that. But it's always been our experience that if you share context with an organization or a company or even just a single individual, you give them a sense of the framework that their brand is going to exist within. It really does paint a picture of the things that it shouldn't be very quickly. Yeah. And then life gets a little easier then to figure out what it should be because now we have some rails in the process. So that's part of that answer. And then the other part, you know, there's always something that emerges you find a sort of a North Star moment. And for us, it was sitting with Leo, who's the chief timpanist, and he was one of our first interviews. And so it's kind of miraculous. I think that word's going to come up a lot. <laughs> but we're sitting outside the hall because we can't be in it. And we're outdoors at a picnic table sort of setting so that we can all have a safe distance and be able to take our masks off and see each other while we interview him. And one of the things that came up that he talked about was how you could trace the bloodlines of specific musicians back to the original composers whomever performed the first of, you know, Mozart's Concerto X, whatever that might have been, that musician may and likely did teach someone else how that piece was meant to be understood. And then that musician taught another one and another one. There's the sheet music, but there's also the bloodlines that track with this. And despite how much time I've spent with music, I'd never heard that before. And so we got really caught up with this idea of the connectivity that goes back over time between the moment a piece is written and how brilliant classical musicians understand it in the present. And then Leo said, you know, a symphony is sort of like a time machine. And he motions at the building. He's like, this is a time machine. Shruti and I, who were conducting that particular interview, just sort of like were immediately into our notebooks. I was vibrating at that point. I'm sure Shruti was as well. When we were done and wrapped and Leo walked away and I'm like, did he just say this building is a time machine? And she was like, I think he said this is a time machine. I'm like, oh, there's the project. Wow. Okay, so now we just need to connect all these ideas across time the time of the building, the time of the music, the time of the typography that sits on the building, the musical notation, the form, on and on and on and on. It just became this beautiful sort of notion of how do we connect these things across time and space. And of course, that culminates even in the motion, the gestures, the musicians themselves as they perform, the time that's witnessed as a bow moves across strings, right? And so you can get as poetic and as esoteric as you want to with that. We got all the way into all the pockets <laughs> of being poetic and esoteric and really like lost ourselves in the project and listened to generous amounts of classical music while we did so. And it was quite revelatory. A lengthy and wandering answer to a very simple question, but immersion could have been the easiest answer to that. We were extremely immersive at the beginning. Well, it's a long winding answer, but it actually makes sense. Yeah. You can see it in the outcome. You didn't phone it in. Yeah. You were deeply invested. No. <laughs> now, we were. if we jump ahead into the first presentation of Creative, I'm curious to know if that was in person or if that was online. And if you came in with this one idea or three routes based on the one idea, three different ones. And then Gwen, how was that presentation received? Technically, the first presentation we gave was our review and our summations of the research itself. And so footnote, that was about five, 600 pages of data collected between interviews, demography, comp sets, you name it. So that was our first presentation. And then the second one was the full creative. And we came with three fully formed ideas. 
thoroughly comped out. We did posters, hung them on easels. We had some of the material comped in t-shirts or tote bags, etc., like just dummy mock-ups. We did an animation for a couple of the concepts to actually sort of bring them to life and scored them. We did that in person in a, one of the sponsors' quite extraordinary conference rooms in a downtown Houston high-rise. So uh, it was quite something for a setting for that. So it was expansive. We brought a ton of stuff, and the three ideas were radically different. And the thing that I think that I'm the most delighted by is that my junior most designer on the project and I took the time to actually animate those concepts and score them, which was just like a dream come true to come back and go, here's seven seconds or 10 seconds of music paired with animation of a logo to sort of pitch the ideas. That was a great, great joy. We had a lot of fun at the first presentation. Speaking for myself, I assume Gwen did. <laughs> but I did. Back to my battle metaphors and, you know, anticipating the worst. <laughs> Although by this point, of course, I knew Jed and the team and Foda and had a lot of faith in them. But I still remember the day walking in. I was very nervous about what we were going to see. And they did a little <laughs> sneak peek for me, but it was literally like 30 minutes before everyone arrived. So I didn't get a lot of a sneak peek. And I do remember, Jet, you guys showed me all three and every single one. I was like, ooh, I really yeah. love this. <laughs> there was one that was pretty out there. Mm-hmm. I know you know the one I'm talking about, Jet. Oh, yeah. It was concept three. <laughs> yeah. Concept three is maybe the best euphemism. But every single one. It was bananas. <laughs> yeah. Every single one I was like, I get it. I get mm. how we got here. I get how it connects to the symphony. And even the bananas, crazy concept three one, I don't think we would have worked with it long term, but it was still like, it made sense. And I appreciated that they spent time fully developing three things. It was clear that there wasn't one that was like, oh, I'm going to just throw in a toss one because I know they're going to toss it and it makes it easier to steer them to this one. None of that came through. It was all very super interesting ideas. And as we talked through them all, Jed and the team were talking about how they got there. And so it was really a fun presentation. There were the posters on the easels. And so we were all physically, like we sat at a conference table and they went through the three with the animations and everything. And then we physically walked around and we're kind of breaking into these smaller groups discussing and you could just hear people reacting. So you have musicians, you have board members, you have different types of people in the room talking through it. But we all, I would say, for the most part, really gravitated towards the ultimate one that was selected, the first iteration of it. Yeah, everybody left the room just feeling very energized and very excited about it. I didn't, I personally, and didn't hear from anyone any single moment of concern of, oh gosh, we need to have a fourth option. There was no question that the design was in the room that day. You know, you fairly quickly decided on the direction. So let's talk about the monogram and the logo itself a little bit more deeply in your process of selecting Veronese as a primary typeface and the rather unique and heavily debated on brand new inspiration references for the logo. (laughs) I love that that became so contentious. That's kind of hilarious to me. I think as designers, you see whatever you see as you're drawing things. It's just, an, you know, it's an offhand sort of comment. Like we see this or we see that while you're making something. There's no need or desire for us to sort of post-rationalize how we got there. And I'm always willing to be candid about the things that we see when we're delineating an idea or where it's coming from. I think it's good to be as open and vulnerable with the client as possible in those spaces and to talk about this is what was motivating us. This is what we were excited about and let the enthusiasm just roll. Even if that means you say some things that go, Okay, wouldn't have seen that, but cool. <laughs> you know, so I think that's fun personally. 
The three concepts that we brought to the table, the first one was devotedly modernist, and it's the one that is the bones of the final concept. We had one that I would call sort of more directly sort of contemporary music and very clean and full of flourish and ornament in a beautiful way and pulling all its lines from musical staffs and notation and other things. And it was gorgeous. And by the way, that concept is where Varanasi, I think, originally lived. And then in the third one, the one that Gwen and I referenced as Bananas, we had taken the approach of like, we think we have something very clean and modest. We have something very decorative and contemporary. We need something that is completely out of the box and outrageous to see like, how far does the symphony want to push reaching a new audience? And so in that one, we'd sort of leaned into this world of three-dimensional form based on calligraphy, pushed into these volumes and voids overlaid with the names of composers and really intense color. It was awesome. We knew it was too far, but we wanted to bring it into the room anyway. <laughs> so, For what it's worth, Jet, not to derail you, but I have it framed in my office as a decorative. Oh, that's great. Because I love it so much. <laughs> I mean, I just adore it. And everyone who walks in is like, oh my gosh, that's the coolest poster yeah. I've ever seen. So it lives on. That's lovely. That makes me so happy. We brought three things. And I should mention, Bryony, I think something important. The studio years ago, probably 10, maybe 12 years ago, I was reading some Paul Rand interviews and, and got kind of caught up with the mythology of Paul and in particular, the tale of he and Steve Jobs and apocryphal or not, I'm not sure, but just the notion that he, you know, he supposedly presented Jobs with one idea for next computers and that Jobs purportedly asked him for options and Rand, who I had to believe said it in a wonderfully curmudgeonly sort of way, supposed to have said, if you want options, hire other designers, you have brought me a problem, I have brought you a solution. And I have always thought that that was really incredible from a certain perspective, and that the idea of a quota in a design process is a very bad idea. And so, you know, we don't obligate ourselves even contractually to how many concepts we're going to bring. We actually have in our contract what we call the RAND clause that says, you have brought us a problem, we'll bring you a solution. There may be more than one solution to the problem, there may be only one. And that language is in our boilerplate legal. So we don't always bring more than one idea, and we don't always bring a fully developed set of ideas. But for the symphony, we were so inspired. It's just like, the, where would you stop the faucet? Where would you turn the faucet off on the inspiration of classical music, you know, number one? And number two, which classical music are we talking about? Pick a composer, pick an era, pick a part of the world, and you're talking about a different art form each time you swap that out. And so we had a hard time stopping at three. <laughs> this is the honest truth. I can imagine. Too many. The one that stuck, the first versions of it didn't have any articulation yet. It was devotedly modernist. It was of the building, of the architecture. We wanted to do one that just really said, we're going to take Jones Hall and that's what we're going to pull through. And so it was just straight up 60s modernism, owing all of its structure to Jones Hall itself. The black and gold already emerged in that concept. And the icon emerged in that concept, though in a much more Swiss-German Teutonic sort of fashion. That was the one that everyone loved in the room. It was powerful. It was iconic. Everyone knew it needed to move forward. And Gwen and the team deserve credit for being the rare, rare, very rare client that could say, is it possible to bring some parts of concept two over to concept one and make that work? And normally that's a designer's nightmare. But they loved Veronese, which lived in concept two. We took a really hard look at it. And my feeling was, you know what? Yeah, actually, I think these can be merged. And I don't think this needs to stay devotedly modernist. And I think we can hold on to the modernist structure of this idea in sort of our grid layouts and our organizational structures and the severity of the form to a degree. But I think we can actually pull this towards Veronese and bring Veronese into the structured layouts of that concept to make them work together. And they do. They do so fabulously, like tremendously.
I want to digress for a moment to say, I think it's really important to note, like, you know, there's a lot of us, you know, walking around feeling pretty good about ourselves as designers that have been practicing for a long time or just got started. And we think we're full of all these brilliant ideas. And I will be the first one to tell you that there is a beautiful 20 year portfolio behind our studio. And it looks that way because of client comments. It's not because we walked into the room with every idea and every answer solved. It's not because we had all the answers and all the things thought out. It's because someone said no to something or someone suggested figuring out a way to mash two things up that we thought was kind of crazy, but we'll try. These things are so much richer for their input. You know, we brought the parts into the room, sure, but we, even we hadn't figured out that they could be married that way. And it was Gwen and the symphony that said, oh, well, maybe these two things could be married up. And that's incredible. I think it's important to underscore that. It's like really great design does not happen in a vacuum and it is wholly contingent upon thoughtful input from the client. They're driving the process too. I don't know that we would have ever occurred to us to marry those two concepts had it not come up organically in the room. And how did that come about on your end, Gwen? How did that conversation happen? I would love to say it was a genius moment, but <laughs> it was more like the posters <laughs> were literally next to each other. We loved this H mark. It was the first animation we saw. It made complete sense in every way to me the second I saw it. Like, I love it. And it was beautiful with the poster they mocked up, the sample. But the second, this Veronese font that we saw in the second concept, I felt like I couldn't live without it because it was so beautiful too. So it was really just the two of them side by side and thinking, I like this thing and I like this thing. Can they live together? And that was the question. And luckily, it sounds like Jed agrees that it was a helpful comment. I mean, I have all this collateral here on my desk. I'm just sitting here staring at it as we talk. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I can't imagine them not being together anymore. Brian, I want to circle back to one part of your question. I wandered off as I'm prone to do, and it may seem like I evaded part of that, and I don't want to. So I want to circle back. No problem. One of the things for me in terms of what we saw in the process and how these things come together, as we started to add articulation to the mark, it was originally inspired by the upright sort of neck of a cello and the way the headstock rolls over. And we thought that was really beautiful. And then we're looking at all these things that are about Houston. The symphony has to, and this came from an interview with John, the CEO, the symphony has to compete for butts and seats and eyes on programs with everything else you might do in a city as big and diverse as Houston, right? So they're not competing necessarily with every other performing arts group in the city. They're competing with the Astros or the Rockets or what's happening at the MFA or all the different things an enormous city can offer. We wanted to arrive at something that was really, really, really powerfully iconic, almost to the notion of this should be something that can live on a baseball cap that I could wear to an Astros game and someone would go, oh, that's cool. That, you know, that's the symphony, but it would feel right at home and even at a sporting event. It's sort of a weird bar to set for ourselves, but we felt they needed to have that sort of parody, mm -hmm. if you will. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah, we wanted them to be like on that level of a singular sort of iconic form, number one. And number two, once we started articulating the form, you can't do anything in Houston without getting a car. Let's just make sure that's very there, clear yeah. to anyone that's never been to Houston. Okay, it is a sprawling, immense city. I read once it's the inverse of Paris, like the number of humans per square foot in Paris. Houston is the exact opposite. It's the number of people per square mile. <laughs> it flips the other way, and it's how spread out humans are here. It is a city commanded by, linked by, determined by freeways. There is nothing you are doing that's not going to require you to get on a freeway at some point during the day in Houston, Texas. 
The car and the car culture and the freeway system is the arterial blood of the city. It is not something that can be ignored. And I know that it ground on some people for us to suggest that that's something that was that occurred to us. But when you think about a bow moving across a cello or across the strings of a violin, these two vertical planes and the movement that goes with it, it's like, I'm sorry. I mean, I see the movement of cars going over a freeway overpass. I can't separate them in my mind. And dear God, I can't think of any better way to manage Houston freeways and to listen to classical music in the car because they will make you go crazy crazy. (laughs) The freeway systems are so challenging. You need to put on something that you can kind of take the edge off in the car. And yeah, and sometimes you go fast and sometimes you go slow. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We saw a lot of things, but I think along with the, the cello forms and the bows moving and so on. In the end, one of the board members cited at the first board presentation that what they loved about the icon was that it felt like we had created a new form of musical notation just for them. We hadn't used something derivative from any other form of musical notation. It was a new symbol in the catalog of musical symbols, which we were never trying to make a musical symbol. In fact, we were really trying to avoid it. So I don't think we could have created that had we been aiming for it that we would have missed. And I thought that was just wonderful praise. When we did one of our slides, once we had that comment from the board, we started incorporating it into the slide. So we show all the musical notation forms and the Houston Symphony icon is tucked in amongst them. I think we gave you that slide. Yeah, we do have it in the case study. It's kind of amazing. You know, it's doing that job. It does feel like it's a new piece of the vocabulary. The joy of that for me is that you can see whatever you want to see in these things. I see one thing, someone else in my design team might see something else, Gwen might see something different, the readers at Brand New might see something else, and that's all fine. It's sort of like lyrics of a song, it's okay to have your own interpretation. Sometimes you don't get the lyrics right. I think it's not so much that they don't see the freeway or they see the freeway. I think for many, it was jarring to use a freeway as inspiration because really, (laughs) when we think of inspiration, it's beautiful things, right? It's all the nice Mm -hmm. of the world. Sure. Not necessarily a freeway, but the inspiration doesn't need to be beautiful. No, it does not. I think that's where the nuance exists in that conversation and yeah. that inspiration yeah. does not need to be beautiful. It is a reference of the city. And if I can defend it a little bit too, and as a lifelong Houstonian, it's true. Like this is the city, right? And every city has its flaws, but somehow the flaws become the character as well. And I think that Foda did a really good job. One of the things we asked them, I think, from the beginning is we need a mark or we need a logo that represents symphony, but it also needs to represent Houston. Mm -hmm. Going back to the sports team conversation, like this does stand on its own as a representation of Houston and the symphony. So you can go either direction or both directions with it. And just because the freeway thing was in Jet's mind or the designer's mind doesn't mean that it's a negative. I don't think it's negative at all. I think it implies every positive thing that we wanted it to imply. As the materials evolve and you start to see applications and develop the system, how much of it is taken on internally, if at all, or is it all photo? How is this evolving so that it's applicable in the long term? We developed an enormous sort of breadth of ideas about the system, assets, laid out posters, catalogs, event programs, you name it. We got way down in there with the million things. It was a joy. Every one of them was so much fun to design. And then, of course, we did the thing that we always do, which is a fairly thoughtful and elaborate graphic standard as well to help guide the next designer in that sort of the baton pass that is a rebrand. We got to meet the incoming new art director for the symphony and be able to have a really robust baton pass. I went to the symphony Saturday night to see Holst's The Planets, which was incredible, and Camille Thomas, which was breathtaking. 
it was a real joy, a real delight to see all of the signs about, you know, there will be no late seating, turn off your ringers and all the little kind of... The mundane stuff. Yeah, the mundane stuff that people usually don't want to think about and talk about and were rarely asked to design because it's just not cost effective usually. It was lovely to see the symphony had taken the baton pass and all these things were beautiful. It was a step and repeat set up for your photos. There was extended posters, screen mesh style banners, if you will, for upcoming events. The marquee outside and lights, oh my goodness. It was a real joy to see the system spread out, the next program developed and all of it working and all of it beautiful. Just really wonderful to see that transitionary process work and to see the symphony from my seat looking like they're loving it, best I can tell. Yes, we are loving it. We have a new creative director that started. She had an interesting start because she started three months before it got rolled out publicly, but it was already decided. Mm -hmm. It's been really fun for her to take on the branding standards and apply them everywhere. And we continue to work with Photo on some things. They designed our season brochure for the 22-23 season, which was announced right around when the rebrand came out. And then they also... One kind of sub-project that's been really impactful for us is our printed programs in the hall. We've gone through some pains with that over COVID, you know, kind of lost the programs because we weren't in the hall and then we brought them back, but they were very low quality and kind of just utilitarian. And they're monthly magazines, basically, that double duty as a program booklet. And they were in such need of a refresh. And I think the new application that we worked with Foda on getting these brought up to our new brand standard has been... And so rewarding because I constantly now in the hall just hear people saying, how beautiful are these programs? Like people literally just walk by me and say these things. Of course, also board members and people that know me tell me that, but it makes me smile every time I get a new crisp, fresh program booklet every month and it has the beautiful branding. It's incredible. That's another really exciting little piece that came out of this. So that was actually going to be my next question. What kind of feedback are you receiving from board members, from musicians, from the music director, everybody? And so you spoke a little bit about that particular application, but it'd be great to hear about that feedback on the broader sense of the entire rebrand. Our music director, thankfully, <laughs> loves it. I was kind of like, I don't know what we do if he doesn't like it, but <laughs> didn't have to deal with that. He just adores it. And it's so sweet because he and his agent, you know, they're European and they come in town and they are like, can I get another t-shirt? Oh, I need a hat for this person. And the other funny thing that was totally unexpected for me, it was like from the first time we presented it to the full board, people have been wanting to wear this thing. Everybody wants something to wear. I just didn't think about that. I was thinking about the posters and the magazine and the website and all of that. So suddenly it was like we were scrambling to make enough hats and t-shirts and tote bags to satisfy everybody. And now they want to bring back retail just because everybody's so excited to wear it. So I think the idea that people are wearing this on baseball caps is definitely coming to fruition. But more generally, I don't know, it sounds like sugarcoating maybe, but the truth is I haven't gotten negative feedback. I just haven't. After all the forewarning I was receiving going into this project, I had kind of girded myself against like, okay, you're going to hear negative criticism. You're going to get some comments. Not everyone's going to like it. Like I had prepared for that and it just has not happened. Cherish that. Yeah, I don't, that's amazing. Like I, said, it's a miracle. I don't know. It's a miracle. I don't think it's a miracle in the sense. I think there is a lot of hard work that was put in into making it happen the way you did. 
it speaks to the partnership, it speaks to the research, to the open conversations, it speaks to the whole process that everybody feels so invested in the outcome and enjoys the outcome. When there's trouble, there's usually a glitch in the process that makes it so, and it sounds like that was not the case at all. Jet. Obviously, there's a personal connection to this whole project based on your background, and you approached the RFQ and everything somewhere between traditionally and unexpectedly so that it would come to fruition. And I want to know in all of that, what was the most satisfying aspect of working on this project? Oh, the single most satisfying aspect. Oh, that is a tough one. We live on in rare air in our studio and that a lot of our projects are really pleasing and we get to work with some really amazing folks. And this project was sort of like an embarrassment of riches in that every part of it was compelling and interesting and exciting. And again, I, to steal from Gwen, she's like sugarcoating it. It's like I just there was no negative experience to doing this. And, you know, in some projects like this, especially at this scale, can get pretty challenging and contentious. And there can be emotions to manage and egos to persuade and so on. But this wasn't that. Maybe that's a function of the time and the moment of the time that we were doing it, that there was a sense of pulling together, I think perhaps brought on by the pandemic that might be unique to that moment. So it's tough to point to any one thing of it and say that like there's the most satisfying, but if I had to strain for it, I think what I would actually say the most satisfying part of it selfishly for me was the project represents a really even exchange and a back and forth dialogue, even within our studio. Yes, there was a big idea moving a certain direction that may have started at that first creative presentation, but the articulation of the icon itself, I had drawn the first pass of that, but the final shape of it and the received more of its tuning to start to look like Veronese, it came from Ryan, a designer in the studio. The animation of the mark for the initial pitch and the presentation of it came from me. Sorry, I'm having a hard time. Allergens are getting me there. I'm not being emotional, I promise. One of the youngest designers in our studio, A, her animation of the work was really beautiful. The way these things mesh together, the notion of the structure and the feel of Veronese came from Shruthi, you know, and on and on. It's like the project really does represent this very beautiful mashing together of wildly different perspectives from people with different ages, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different gender identities, you know, on and on and on. And yet, remarkably, all of that is present in the work. And it also is responsive to that same level of expansive sort of human diversity and opinion and thought and feeling living with the symphony. And so having those two things converge and work in this sort of, frankly, somewhat utopian kind of way, it's a rarity and an absolute pleasure and a real delight. I'm very proud of that sort of no ego sharing of ideas and thoughts that move back and forth in and amongst my own team. It makes me really happy. It's always the goal and I'm very proud of them. Sounds like you had your own creative symphony. (laughs) Well played. Yeah, I got to tell you how many bad music puns underscored (laughs) this process. I mean, (laughs) I saved that one. Um, I tried to do this whole interview without using any, but I can't tell you how many profoundly bad dad jokes and music puns every step of the way, groaners in every Slack huddle, Zoom call, in-house sketch session. I mean, I laid it on thick. I have a young saxophone player at home. We're in year two, and judging by the amount of jokes in almost two years, I can only imagine a whole group of people deeply invested in the topic. Must be insane. 
you lose track of how much language is actually, like how often we use musical metaphors in common language, just in common parlance, right? Well, I really don't want to hit a flat note with this and blah, blah, blah. Like it's just, it does live in our language. And so it got to a point that it was embarrassing. It's like, I'm actually really not trying to use a musical metaphor right now. Let me grasp for another one because it would just happen every call. There was so many groans. I don't know how the crew made it through it. I mean, I dad joked him hard. It was ruthless. <laughs> it's every. <laughs> All right. Final question. Instead of looking back, hmm. what of what lies ahead is the most exciting for each of you on a personal level? Look, we're still coming out of COVID recovering. All of the performing arts are, you know, the lifestyles changed, things changed, and we're all getting back to the halls and supporting the arts. And so for us, we have this beautiful aesthetic. We have this beautiful visual brand that I'm so proud of. And I'm very excited to have that asset as we go forward with rebuilding our old audience and also reaching the new audience and attracting new lovers of music. And so for me, that's exciting. I also, this is less profound, I guess, but, you know, back to the kind of wearable and visual tactical part, we really want to make a giant H mark. Like it's our dream. We're trying to figure out functionally how to do it that we can take around and people can take photos with because people just love this image, you know, finding more ways to apply it in the world since there seems to be a demand for that. We're eager to continue to explore those things. Well, I certainly hope that we will have more opportunities to serve the symphony because we love it and it's been such a successful process thus far. That's a no-brainer. I think if we expand it out further, I don't know, um, I suffer um, the role for our studio of being like, you know, fearless leader and Foda's exaggerated sense of ambition that's supposed to live with me. And so there is a piece of me that would really like to see where an exercise and an outcome like this leads us in the future in terms of being able to serve larger, more community oriented entities like a performing arts group, like a museum, maybe perhaps even a city itself. It's like, we've got a pretty good bucket list running of things that we've gotten to do. And this makes me go, okay, well, maybe now like a small town or a village, <laughs> maybe a full-blown city identity. There's no check on the ambition for me and like the scale of the studio. And so I think for us, we feel like the outcome of the Houston Symphony is really wonderful evidence that you can move through a process with an enormous amount of emotion attached to it and a lot of different players and actually have really great outcomes. That would be very exciting to me to see where that leads next. Anywhere in the world that might take us as well. We've been very lucky to play outside of our little sandbox in Austin a lot. And so it would be fun to discover such an opportunity somewhere in the world. Well, I want to thank you for sharing this particular chapter that in a way is setting you both up for a next step for what is to come. And while it was a deeply invested project, both on a personal level and a professional level for both of you, you can definitely see the benefits of that investment, of that immersion, of being knee-deep into every bit of the project from beginning to end, and the lessons that you're taking and the ambitions that you're taking from it of, well, if we could do this, then what can we do next, right? Indeed. Thank you so much for sharing this with us and with our audience. It was a pleasure having you on the follow-up. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Brianna, what a pleasure. Thank you. Um, it's been an honor to sit with you this morning. There were so many great insights in this episode, thanks to Jet's considerate and thoughtful responses that are a great reflection of Foda's process and approach, and that were clearly very much appreciated by Wen and her team. You know you've done something right as a designer when the client frames a mock-up from the quote bananas, end quote, concept as a keepsake, which is a good moral of the story to end on. 
The bananas version can often be seen as the indulgent or almost selfish option, or the one that makes the other options look sane, but it is most definitely always worth having one option like this to test the comfort zone of the client and you never know what will come out of it, even if it's just a keepsake. Also, when in doubt, and you're in the position of having to design an identity for a symphony, maybe avoid solving the logo by choosing a sans serif and adding a swoosh thing to the left. Today, thanks for listening. Until next time, we'll be here, we hope you'll be there.